The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Today, expert knowledge is so highly valued that we learn to lead first as the expert whose mastery of the details helps teams solve problems. Eventually, as your leadership role expands, expert leaders find themselves in a role where others know more. Details are no longer so accessible, and decisions are made without a full understanding. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone with Dr. Wanda Wallace. It's time to find out how to make the transformation smooth and flawless. Now, here is Dr. Wanda Wallace. Welcome to the show. Now, today, I want to talk about what it is that the most effective people actually do. And in particular, what do they do that I don't do or you don't do? For one, we know that effective leaders really tend to have mental toughness. They can kind of let things go. They don't take things so personally, and they focus on what matters, just to name a few. We're going to take an interesting twist for this today. My guest, Amy Morin, actually has the answer to what mentally tough people do. And along the way in discovering that, she identified 13 things that they don't do. So some bad habits that we need to break. So Amy is a licensed clinical social worker, a psychotherapist, and a lecturer at Northeastern University. She has a best-selling book, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do, that's being translated into more than 20 languages. She's a sought-after speaker, a mental strength trainer, and she has a regular column in Forbes and Inc. And if that's not enough, obviously she's been in a variety of media outlets like Time, Fast Company, Entrepreneur Success, Oprah, Cosmopolitan, Fox News, and CNN, and the list goes on. Amy, welcome to the show. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this one. All right, so I know because I hear this all the time, mental toughness is really important. What do you mean when you say, and you use the word mentally strong, what does that mean to you? Well, I always tell people, you know, your brain can be your best asset or your worst enemy. And when you develop mental strength, you figure out, how do you make it your best asset? And it's really, there's three parts to mental strength. It's about regulating your thoughts so that you don't think either overly negative or also you don't want to be overly positive because sometimes overconfidence can be a problem too. So it's about thinking realistically. And the second part is learning how to manage your emotions. And sometimes that means, you know, getting yourself out of a bad mood so that you don't stay stuck or it's about figuring out how do you deal with your anger in a productive way, which brings us to the third part, which is figuring out how do you behave productively despite whatever circumstances you find yourself in. And so sometimes that means doing something that's contrary to how you feel. Maybe you don't feel like getting up and getting out, but that's what's best for you. So you figure out how do you do it anyway, or you know that it's scary to do something, but it's Ultimately, it's good for you, so you say, okay, how do I take a one small step forward towards reaching my goal? And when you combine those three things, it really helps you to, to live life to your fullest. It sounds like life would be a whole lot easier to deal with if I can keep some of those overly negative thoughts. And I understand also the overly positive thoughts, because those set me up for disappointments. It's never perfect, and I can see why that would make a difference. Managing emotions and behave productively regardless of the circumstances. Okay, I'm sold. How do we do that? It's a matter of figuring out, okay, first of all, you need healthy habits. And I always tell people developing mental strength, it's similar to develop. If you were going to develop physical strength, you'd need good habits like lifting weights and going to the gym, but you'd also have to give up bad habits like eating too much junk food. If you really wanted to see results, and I'm a big fan of working smarter rather than just working harder, and I think so often people will say, well, you know, you just need to think positively or you need to practice gratitude, and those things are great, but I think it's also important to just give up some of those bad habits that we're prone to because otherwise you just become like this hamster in a wheel who doesn't get anywhere, and so... Really, it's a matter of figuring out what healthy habits can I develop in my life and then to say, well, what bad habits are also 
slowing down my progress and getting rid of those. And it's really about the choices that you make every day. Everybody has an opportunity to build mental strength. And there's always room for improvement. Sometimes I hear people say, well, I'm mentally strong enough. I don't need to do anything. But that would sort of like be saying, well, I'm physically strong, so I don't need to go to the gym. But we know if you didn't keep working out those muscles, they're not going to stay strong. And mental strength is the same. It's a constant work in progress to continue to strive to become better. I like this because instead of, you know, people will give the advice, oh, let it go. Well, but if I'm in the middle of a grip of something that is driving me bananas, letting it go sounds like good advice, but I have no clue how to begin. And it sounds like this notion of giving up the bad habits and increasing healthy habits actually gives me a roadmap for what to really do. Yeah, I try to be specific because I think we try we talk about so many things in life about, you know, just becoming better, a better version of yourself, but then people don't offer the specifics of, okay, well, how do I do that? And sometimes it's just figuring out what's the, some small steps I can take in my life and how do I how do I get started? Because often there's a seems like a windy road between point A and point B and people say, I don't even know where to begin. And so to figure out, well, what's one thing I can do today? And maybe it's saying I'm going to, you know, apply for three new jobs, or maybe it's a matter of saying I'm going to walk one mile today, whatever it might be, but to just pick a couple of really small, actionable steps that can get you started, and then to pay attention, well, are you, uh, is your mind starting to think all these negative things, are you doubting yourself, are you trying to talk yourself out of it, and then to look at your emotions, is it hard to do these things, because you, you know, you lack energy, or you're just tired, or, or because you're, discouraged before you even get started and then how do you behave productively anyway despite that and I think life is really a a series of behavioral experiments to say I'm going to try something different see how it works but then also pay attention to what happens to my brain when I try this new thing and how do I notice my emotions are different and then to to learn from each of those experiments and then go on and do something better the next time. I love that. Life is a series of behavioral experiments. I'm going to quote that one. I think that's fabulous. All right, Amy, so I'm hooked. Mentally strong people have good, healthy habits. And what that means is there are things that they don't do. They give up some bad habits. You have 13 of these bad habits that they don't do. I got to know, what are the 13 bad habits? Well, they're all, you know, the thoughts, the emotions, and the and the behaviors that we're all prone to doing at one time or another, but that they can definitely hold us back. And so I tried to come up with the things that would really, um, would really resonate with people that as far as things that I know we all do. And sometimes people will say, well, I don't do any of those things. And I think it's easy to say that when life is going well, but it's different when you hit a roadblock. So the first one on my list was that mentally strong people don't feel sorry for themselves second one is that they don't give away their power, they don't shy away from change, they don't waste energy on things that they can't control, they don't worry about pleasing everyone, they don't take fear taking calculated risks, they don't dwell on the past, they don't make the same mistakes over and over, they don't resent other people's success, they don't give up after their first failure, they don't fear alone time. They don't feel the world owes them anything, and they don't expect immediate results. Okay, now those are really powerful ones. Let's go back over them quickly. You said they don't feel sorry for themselves, okay? Now, here I am in the grip of something. I didn't get the promotion I thought I was due, or I didn't get the opportunity. I got turned down for it, and I'm really feeling pretty bad. How do I get myself out of feeling sorry for myself? And it can be a tough one, and I think for people to recognize that it's normal to be sad or to grieve or to feel bad when something bad happens, but self-pity is really about sort of magnifying your misfortune, and when you start to think, nobody else has to deal with these problems that I do, and when you think that way, it keeps you stuck because it just keeps you focused on the problem. So the solution is to say, well, how do I how do I focus on what I can do to make my life better? And sometimes there's problems that we can't solve. You can't help it if you have a health problem or if you've lost a loved one. But you can still take steps to make your life a little bit better. And so I really encourage people to avoid, you know, um, throwing a pity party. And that's often about just venting to people constantly to just bring up all the bad things that are going on in your life, but to purposely decide I'm going to have some gratitude in my life. What am I grateful for? What do I have? And to really shift your focus into what can I do about this and how do I take a, a 
step in the right direction so that I can at least improve my life or somebody else's life a little bit, even if I can't solve the problem. Okay. Sometimes I say to people, you may disagree with this one, but sometimes I say to people that it is okay to grieve, but you get a limited time frame and you get to do it by yourself. So I'll say you get an hour, go home, you know, do whatever it is you want to do to put yourself in a quiet, private place. You can have the biggest pity party you want, but when the hour is over, up, out, and moving. Yes, and I think that's fine. I think it's when people, you know, if you feel sorry for yourself for a very limited time, it's probably not going to do anybody any harm, including yourself, but when you stay stuck there. You know, I see a lot of people in my therapy office who they're stuck and they've been there for years and they just, you know, want to looking for more evidence to reinforce their belief that, they, that they're helpless and they really don't want to hear any advice to the contrary. And, and that's the people that, you know, they grow bitter and they're angry and they're just, you know, want to sort of lash out at the world after a while because they've been stuck in their pity party for so long. Okay. All right, so let's go to the second one. They don't give away their power. Um, tell me what that looks like. What do you mean they don't give away their power? That one is about saying, okay, nobody has the power to control how I think, feel, or behave. Because I think sometimes it's easy to say, well, other people make me feel bad about myself, or everybody at work is so negative, it always drags me down. But to realize, okay, I have the power to say I'm going to be in a good mood today despite whatever goes on around me, or... I'm in charge of my own self-worth. Nobody else can make me feel bad. And it's really just taking back that power. And sometimes it's a matter of changing your language. So instead of saying, somebody makes you do this or I have to do that, just recognizing that you have a choice sometimes can make all the difference in the world. Okay. That's a very subtle one that I can imagine if you're caught in the grip of giving away your power, you might not appreciate just how much you're doing that. So it is about deciding I am going to control how I think, how I feel, and how I behave. Other things will happen around me, but I choose how I react to it. Okay? That's it exactly, yes. All right. Easier said than done, but I understand how mental strength comes from the ability to do that. Let's go to, I'm going to skip down a couple. They don't worry about things they can't control. Oh my goodness, in my coaching practice, if I could instill this in people, well, I might not have a coaching practice left. How do you advise people to do that? Well, you know, it's scary, I think, for a lot of us when you really look at how much you have control over A lot of things you don't, and on a daily basis, we tend to worry so much about all the things that we have zero control over, and sometimes it's just a matter of recognizing that and honoring it and accepting it. Okay, I can't control the weather for tomorrow, so worrying about whether or not it's going to rain isn't going to do me any good, or I can't control traffic. If I get stuck in traffic, there's nothing I can do about it, and you know, to be able to say, okay, I can't control these things, but what can I control? Well, I can say, how do I prepare for the worst case scenario or how do I prevent bad things from happening? And you can do those things to an extent, but you can't control other people. And I think that's a big one for a lot of us is we want to have some control over how other people behave or we want to have some control over all the events that happen to us in our life, but you can't. And just accepting that sometimes can be really freeing for people, but also really scary to be able to say, there's a lot of things in my life that that I just have zero control over. But sometimes just acknowledging that and then figuring out how do I use my energy most productively? How do I prepare for the storm without spending all my energy wishing it wasn't going to happen? We um, often do an exercise with groups and with individuals where we have them identify in a, sort of in a work, in accomplishing a task. So this isn't just your personal effectiveness. This is your group work. The factors that are going to affect your group success that are in the external environment, and you largely have no control over those. Regulatory changes, climate changes, a whole bunch of stuff can affect your success, and you can't control them. And then there's a series of things in the task environment that you fundamentally don't have control over, but you have influence on. And so you try to exert that influence, but not try to control it. And then there's this small, tiny bit in the middle that you actually do have some control over. So it's just another way of saying, how do we not worry about things that you can't do anything about? Okay, and I agree with you. I find the senior most leaders who are effective in their jobs are really good at determining what I control and what I can't. Yeah, and I see some people when they have trouble 
um, sort of accepting that rather than trying to control their reaction. They spend their energy trying to control other people. And that's when they become those ineffective leaders that struggle the most and to say, okay, you know, I don't need to control what everybody else is doing. If I just control myself and then worry more about influencing them rather than controlling them, it shifts the whole dynamic. Yeah, I often say if you're trying to, if you're taking an action that is trying to make somebody else do something different, you're in really dangerous territory. It doesn't work anyway, and it's usually pretty offensive. And that's another way of saying I'm trying to control what somebody else is doing. Yeah. Okay, so let, let's turn to this notion of pleasing others. Another one that I see a lot of people get stuck in, that they won't make, make hard decisions because they need to please everybody else. What's your advice there? You know, I think to figure out, okay, what are my beliefs about pleasing people? I'll meet with a lot of people who will say, well, I want to be liked. Well, why do you need to be liked? Is it Does your self-worth depend on how many people like you or an opinion poll? Or is it a matter of do you think that people who say no are selfish? And then to kind of look at what are the pros and the cons? What am I gaining from this? And then what am I potentially losing? And I worked with this woman for a while who had came to therapy because she said, I'm so discouraged. Everybody around me keeps getting promoted, and I try my best. I show up to work early. I work late. I always do everything everybody wants me to do, and I never get promoted. And so I challenged her to talk to her boss to just find out why she wasn't getting promoted. And she came back the next week, and she said, "Um, all those things I thought I was doing that was showing my boss that I was going to be a good worker were actually hurting me. Because when I asked him how come I'm not getting promoted, he said, well, you can't say no to anybody, and you're – like a doormat, and you just don't seem like you possess leadership qualities. I can't put you in a leadership position. And she said, you know, all those years I thought I was pleasing my boss and that that would lead to a promotion, but really it was showing him that I wasn't going to be a good leader. And I think a lot of people end up doing something similar in their own lives, that we think that, you know, our presence is going to make other people happy or saying yes to these things is going to have this great influence. But in reality, that's often not the case. And learning how do you say no... And for a lot of people, it's a reflex to just say yes or to nod when somebody asks them a question instead of figure out how can you say no to people, and you don't even need an excuse. Sometimes you can just say, I'll get back to you about that or I'll have to think about it if you need to buy yourself some time. But you can also say, no, I'm not going to do that, and you don't necessarily need a lengthy list of reasons why you're not going to do something for them. And I think it's really about figuring out how do I how do I figure out what I want in life and figure out which choices to say yes to, but also to be willing to say no sometimes. Okay. So we're back to sort of priorities. What is it that's worth my time and why am I doing it? And the willingness to say just simply, no, I can't do that for you. I often say the more words you give people, the more reasons you give them to come back and challenge your thinking. So less yes. words are better. <laughs> Easier to get away with that one. I have a case. Yes. We'll do this, well. I want to do this last bit, and then we'll take a break. But um, this case of a person, a woman in this case, who wants to please her boss, and she is so focused on pleasing her boss, and her boss is not giving her back the kudos, the love, the sense of appreciation, the sense of valuing that she wants to feel satisfied, and their relationship is absolutely broken as a result. He's frustrated because she keeps trying to get his approval and please him. And she's frustrated because she's not getting his approval and she can't seem to please him. Okay, and that's a case of being stuck in the pleasing others. Any advice for her and the hundreds of other people who are like her? You know, I think it's a matter of figuring out... you can always ask somebody directly, like, what are you looking for? What would what would let you know that I'm doing a good job? Because sometimes we create these ideas in our heads about what a good employee looks like without even consulting the boss to say, well, what does a good employee look like? What would a good employee be doing? And then to really evaluate to yourself, okay, well, now that I know what my boss is looking for, what would I do differently? What what does a good employee do at my at my company? And am I doing those things, or how might my some of my behavior be perceived as something different other than being a good employee? And I, I'm just always a big fan of having open dialogue when you can. If your boss is willing to sit down and talk to you, and I think most bosses are, when somebody's eager to say, I want to do all I can to to be as the best employee possible, then to just get some feedback and be willing and open to, to hearing as much feedback as you can, even if you don't necessarily like what you hear, and figure out how do you apply that to become the, the best employee that you can be. 
I really like that, that you would go to the boss and you say, what is it that a really good employee looks like? Tell me what your ideal perfect employee looks like. It's not even giving you directly feedback and it makes it an easier initial conversation. In the case I just described, if the individual went to her boss and said, what does a great employee look like? I think she would find that he is not wanting several things that she's doing. And she thinks that's what she should be doing. I actually think it would work quite well in this case. Okay, Amy, we're going to take a break. Um, Amy Moran has been with me today. She's a licensed clinical social worker, psychotherapist, and a lecturer at Northwestern University. She has a fabulous best-selling book called 13 Things Mentally Strong People Do. And the notion is mental strength is like a physical strength. I have to adopt healthy habits and break bad habits. So what are the 13 bad habits that people do? We've been talking about not feeling sorry for yourself, not giving away your power, not shying away from change, not worrying about things you can't control, and not trying to please people. When we come back, I want to talk about failures and mistakes and what is it that mentally strong people do in those cases. We'll be right back. Making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. If you want more information on the coaching and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. If you are interested in finding out more, you can also purchase a copy of the forthcoming book or any of Dr. Wallace's current books by clicking on the links under the resources tab on our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're also sure to find some handy links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Amy Morin. Amy is a lecturer at Northeastern University, a licensed social clinical social worker, a psychotherapist, and the book that she's written is 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do a best-selling book that's been translated into more than 20 languages. She's a sought-after speaker and a mental strength trainer who helps people overcome mental obstacles that keep them from achieving their greatest potential and a regular column writer in Forbes and Inc. INC. Now, we've been talking about the notion that mental strength involves three components. It involves the regulating thoughts, it involves managing the emotions, and it involves behaving productively regardless how you feel at the given time. So in looking at how mentally strong people do their work, Amy has identified the good habits and more importantly, the bad habits we need to break. So the 13 things that mentally strong people don't do. Now, I want to talk, start the top of this with talking about a really interesting one that we don't hear very often and that leads into this discussion about failures and mistakes. So Amy, one of the things, one of the things mentally strong people don't do is they don't worry about other people's success. Explain what that means and why that's important. Well, I think it's so easy in today's world to compare ourselves to other people based on whatever we see is on Facebook or, you know, social media tends to make it worse, but I think the Internet in general in our digital age and it just becomes this competition sometimes, at least in our minds, about who has the most money or the most prestige or the most fame or who's getting the most going on the best vacations with their family, for instance. And the research is pretty clear that when you start to become envious and resentful of other people, it leads to depression, for example. There's a study that found that. And 
every minute that you spend worrying about whether somebody's ahead of you or how they're doing in their life is a minute that you take your eyes off of your own goals, and it really just becomes this distraction and clutters your mind with all these things that you, again, don't have control over. You don't have control over how your competition's doing. And I think for a lot of people that causes a lot of problems in their life. They're really resentful that either somebody else drives a nicer car or lives in a bigger house, and it, it's sort of this thing that they create in their minds that there's some sort of a race or there's a prize to, you know, say, I have the most of whatever it is, and it really causes people to lose sight of their values, too. Okay. You know, a couple of years ago um, in Atlantic, in the Atlantic Monthly Magazine, there was a discussion summarizing a bunch of research about midlife crisis and depression that comes with midlife crisis. And the argument there, at least, was a lot of that has to do with people saying, I am not where I expected to be, which is a comparison story, at this stage of my life, as opposed to I'm happy with where I am, I'm not where I expected to be. That sounds like the same thing, is it? Yeah, I think it is. And I think, you know, aging in general, when somebody says, oh, my gosh, you know, I turned 40, I turned 50, I can't believe it, and this is horrible, it's often because our expectation was different. We thought that someday we were going to have all these things and be somewhere, and then the reality doesn't quite line up. And that can definitely lead to a lot of those same exact emotions where you think, you know, my my ideal versus my real life, and it's just not what I expected. And often that turns to looking around at, well, Sally has that, or my neighbor has these things, in life, why can't I have them too? And that's a really destructive path to go down. Okay. Jason Troy, who was a radio show guest a couple of weeks ago, says that one of the reasons we don't have purpose in our lives is because we define, we confuse purpose and goals. And that goals are externally driven and they're often a comparison. I want to be the best manager or the best salesperson or the best parent or the whatever. And that those goals, because they're comparative, will always let us down 100% of the time because there's always one more better, one more thing you can do. And we're back to that same thing, not resenting other people's successes. Okay, so let's go from this notion of not resenting other people's successes to how do you help people deal with failures and mistakes? And let me set this one up. I routinely ask senior leaders across all of my clients to describe an occasion in which they had a major failure or setback. And I have to tell you, some incredibly successful people have some whopping mistakes and failures, some of their own doing, some of them sort of accidental. Um, And it is really a matter of learning to deal with those that helps them keep going. In fact, some of us would argue that that's what makes you a strong leader. So what's your view on mistakes and failures and how to deal with them? I'm a huge fan of just owning up to it. I think um, it's so easy sometimes to invest our energy into the wrong things rather than figuring out, okay, I made this mistake. How do I learn from it so I can do better next time? We, it's this ingrained thing where we say, I don't want anybody to know that I messed up or I'm ashamed that I'm a failure. So I'm going to put my energy into hiding it or disguising it or pretending it didn't happen because I don't want to be embarrassed or I don't want other people to reject me. And you can waste tons and tons of energy into that rather than saying, how do I move forward towards my goal? And for a lot of us, I think that sometimes that goes back to childhood when you were a kid and you raised your hand in class and you had the wrong answer. It was embarrassing, or maybe as a kid you figured out, if I lie to my parents about that mistake that I made, they won't know, and then I won't get in trouble. And that works for you. So you figure out, even as an adult, like, hey, I just won't admit that I just did this, and I'll hope nobody notices. But, you know, when you don't learn from your mistakes, you're much more likely to repeat them. And I think even as a society, sometimes when we talk about mistakes, People will admit, you know, something really minor. They'll come up with an example of, oh, yeah, I, I shouldn't have done this or I shouldn't have posted that on social media that one time, but but it's better now. And rather than just being more vulnerable and saying, yeah, I really messed up, I did this huge thing or I said these things, and um, we can spend more energy into trying to save face, which is more about acting tough rather than actually being mentally strong. And Quite often, it's to our own detriment. I had worked with this man once who, he was an overweight gentleman who was referred to therapy by his doctor, and his doctor had said, 
you know, he's not doing all the things I tell him to do. He's starting to have some serious health problems. I think maybe he has some underlying mental health issues that's getting in the way. And he came into my therapy office and he said, well, it's not that I'm crazy. It's that I could lose weight if I wanted to. I just don't want to do it because I did it before and I don't want to do it again. I said, well, what do you mean you've lost weight before? And he said, well, you know, a year ago I dropped about 100 pounds, and everybody kept saying, wow, you look great, and I'm so proud of you. He said, but then I started to gain the weight back, and as soon as I gained it back, people looked at me with disappointment like I was a failure. He said, I don't ever want to go through that again. He said, at least if you fail behind closed doors, nobody knows, but when you're a failure with your own weight loss, everybody can see that you're a failure. And... Now here he was allowing it to affect his own health because he just, he'd said, you know, I'd rather be overweight than have people think I'm a failure. And I think a lot of us do those sorts of things in our own life. It's just too scary to think of ourselves as somebody who fails. So we go to these great lengths to either not try or not put ourselves out there or to try to cover up those mistakes when we do make them. Yeah, I mean, so there are some consequences. There are some kind of mistakes in which there are consequences. You know, if you're yeah. in a trading floor and you, you know, make a risky decision, it's a bad decision. It's kind of going to be hard to hide it. I have one senior leader who says, um, "I will never hire, fire you, or get you in trouble for a mistake you tell me about." But you make any mistake and hide it from me of any size, and you're gone. Which I think is an interesting statement of okay, stuff goes wrong. So, how, so I get it that we live in a society where we try for perfection, where we're doing this comparative stuff, where we don't want to admit any vulnerabilities at all, and that admitting I got something wrong does create shame. I'm not good enough, kind of phenomena. All right. So, anything that's going to help us kind of get over that sense of doom and gloom about mistakes that we all make. Yeah, I think a few things, you know, first is to not allow yourself to go to this sort of catastrophic place and to start predicting that, you know, the world is going to stop turning on its axis because you made this mistake. And it, it may affect you. It may have lifelong consequences when you make a mistake, but that's not to say you can't still live a good life and you can't go out and, and be the best person that you can be and accomplish a lot of other things. And so I think that's key sometimes is to just be realistic with your thinking about it. And then also, I always tell people, too, failure is a verb, not a noun. So to be able to say, okay, I, I failed at something, but that doesn't mean I'm a failure as a human being, that you are still successful at many things in your life, and just reminding yourself sometimes of here are the places that I have been successful. And then to be willing to share your story. I think sometimes just opening up and, and telling other people, hey, this is what happened, can reinforce to you that it's not nearly as scary as you might think to admit that you made mistakes, because I think sometimes we carry around this fear of how other people are going to reject us when we tell them. But when you get used to doing it, you realize that it's really refreshing sometimes to other people to hear you admit that you made a mistake. And it's quite rare that people are then going to reject you for life because you owned up to your own mistake. And I think it's really about practicing tolerating all those uncomfortable feelings that can come along with failing and making mistakes that helps you gain your confidence in knowing, okay, this is uncomfortable, but I can handle it. Okay, so I can handle it. Um, I'm going to tell you, want to tell you a story about a mistake I heard, and then I want to turn to this whole notion of shame, because I think it's a topic we talk about in psychological terms, but we don't talk about it at work. I want to do that. But I first have to tell you a story, because it's just a funny one. Um, this was a guy in one of the financial services firms that I have worked with historically, and he there was a mistake in his trading action that looked like an illegal procedure. And he is then under investigation, meaning he could go to jail. They don't know how long this is going to take to figure out if he's going to jail or not. He's pretty confident that he didn't do anything that would put him in jail. But you can imagine the nervousness and anxiety sitting there. It took them two years to clear that. And he is sitting on the sidelines in the company waiting for what's going to happen for two years. I can't imagine how hard that would be. Talk about mental toughness, mental strength. At any rate, um, it turns out eventually he was okay. And But, you know, he's been out of his job for a while, not doing anything significant. So they shuttled him off to a remote office that at the time was kind of the, you know, no man's land. There wasn't anything interesting happening there. And he stayed in that role for eight years. And his what God kept him going was he said, I'm going to prove to them I'm good. 
I'm not giving up. I have faith in myself. I'm going to prove to them. And he did. Eventually comes back and makes managing director, which is a big deal in financial services, but eight years behind his peer group. Talk about a story about mental toughness. I can also tell you when he shares that story publicly, in comparison, everybody else in the room says, okay, mistakes are happening, so big, none of mine are that big of a deal. So, Amy, I want to talk for a minute about this whole notion of shame. Um, Brene Brown has made a lot of a splash about this in the TED Talk world. But talk to us about this whole cycle of what happens when we feel shame, and is that part of what keeps us from being mentally strong? It is, because when we, you know, I think all of us feel shame at one time or another, but it's really on how do you react to that emotion. And I think for a lot of people it causes them to to shy away. They want to hide. They just say, okay, I can't let anybody know this about me, and they feel like they're carrying around these huge secrets. And really when you let go of the shame, it's to say, it's okay that that happened, and I'm still an okay person. And, you know, there's a difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is feeling bad about what you did, and shame is feeling bad about who you are. And just differentiating those two things, you know, when you make a mistake that maybe you feel guilty because you messed up, because you might have hurt other people, but to feel shame is then when you start to blame yourself for being a bad person. And I'm yet to meet anybody in life who ever feels like they're a bad person, yet they're able to get out and accomplish great things. Because when you hold on to that belief, we just look for more evidence that reinforces, I can't do anything, I'm a bad person, this will never work out, and we don't try, we don't put ourselves out there. And so I think when people have that shame, it's really about figuring out how do I work on myself so that I don't allow this to become a lifelong belief that I just keep clinging to, because it will affect how much you accomplish and how well you do in all areas of your life. I like that. I mean, that's a very simple way of saying it. So the guilt is that I feel bad about what I do, which is healthy and constructive. I didn't do the right things. Maybe I should feel guilty about them and I can take action on it. But when I feel bad about who I am, what I do is I look for reinforcing evidence and that keeps me from doing anything good because I'm just constantly looking for what's going to go wrong. Yes, that's it. Exactly. All right, so the secret to get out of shame, how do, how do you advise people to react to break the cycle of shame? I think it's about really saying, okay, well, why why is it that I feel like I'm a bad person? And um, some, maybe it means you need to do something in your life, somebody that is embezzling money and cheating on their spouse and doing bad things may have some shame that says I'm a bad person. So in order for them to feel better, they need to to break those habits and say, I'm going to live a different life that's more in line with what my values are. And so for some people, that's the case. Other times for people, it's just a matter of, okay, I feel bad for who I am. I'm doing all the things I think I should be in life, but I still feel bad. Figure out why why do you hold on to that belief? Was it something that happened to you in childhood? Is it something that um, somebody once said something bad and you believed it? But to really figure out why do I hold on to that belief and Getting rid of it sometimes is a matter of changing your habits, but it's also changing your thoughts, changing the way you think and saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get out there and do these things and sort of prove myself wrong and figure out how do I um, live my life in accordance with being a good person and then let it change your brain. Let it start thinking more differently. Start thinking about all the good things that you do in life and start testing those theories. Are people going to judge me harshly? And what about if I do tell people my story? Are they going to reject me? And I think when you have some success with that, it kind of starts chipping away at that belief that you're a bad person. That's interesting. Um, i give you an example. I've had several of these, but uh, more recently, a guy who did not go to university and who entered the corporate world, got a pretty good job, worked his way up to a pretty substantial executive role, but never went to university. And everyone around him, you know, has university degrees and all the obvious candidates would um, would appear. And yet he has, th- this is the thing that holds him back. There's somehow this fact that I didn't go to university means that somehow I'm not good enough. And that if people find that out about me, then they will reject me. Which is interesting, in spite of all that he's proven. So what's your advice to him? Yeah, it's interesting you bring up that example. I've worked with people who have very similar scenarios where they think, because of this, I can't succeed. So sometimes it's a matter of telling yourself, holding on to this belief, what do I get out of it? 
and maybe it's, well, then I don't have to try. I don't have to put myself out there. I can stay inside my comfort zone because that sort of becomes an excuse. And then to ask yourself, well, what am I losing by holding on to this belief? Maybe I'm losing out on doing all these things that I could do, but because I believe I can't, I just never go out and try. And sometimes it's a matter of just sitting down with a piece of paper and writing down the pros and the cons of holding on to this belief. And then you flip the piece of paper over and you say, what are the pros and the cons of letting go of this belief? And sometimes people can see how what sorts of things are reinforcing to them that if I hold on to this belief that maybe I don't have to do uncomfortable things. And just putting it down on paper and reading it over can be eye-opening for people just to see some of the logic involved because it gets rid of the emotional attachment to that belief that we hold on to. Okay. Amy, fabulous. We're going to take a break again. With me today is Amy Morin. The book that we have been talking about is 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do, a best-selling book in more than 20 languages. Amy is a licensed clinical social worker, psychotherapist, and a lecturer at Northeastern University, as well as a sought-after speaker and a regular columnist in Forbes and Inc. When we come back, I want to focus on a couple of the other components that mentally strong people don't do, and in particular, a little bit more on dealing with resentment. We'll be right back. making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. If you want more information on the coaching and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. If you are interested in finding out more, you can also purchase a copy of the forthcoming book or any of Dr. Wallace's current books by clicking on the links under the resources tab on our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're also sure to find some handy links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Amy Morin. And the book we've been talking about is 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. Again, the notion is that you develop good habits in order to be mentally strong. And that means we have to stop doing some bad habits. So we've been talking about a variety of bad habits that people do. One of those is resenting other people's success um, and a host of other ones. But I want to turn now to talk about two others in particular. And one of those, Amy, you say is mentally strong people don't expect immediate results. Why is that and why does that matter? Now, I think in today's world, we look around and we think that things happen fast because so many things do happen fast. You can order something online and have it delivered to your doorstep in 24 hours. And But I think when it comes to making real positive change and change within yourself, it's a much slower process. And I see a lot of people who will start to on their path towards making a big change in their life, but they get a couple of weeks into it and they're just not seeing results fast enough, so they convince themselves this isn't worth it, or they'll say, I can't do this, or there's no sense in trying, and they give up on their goals way too soon. And something I see in therapy is people come into my therapy office and they'll say, well, therapy's not working. I've been here three weeks and I'm still depressed. And I'll have to talk to them about, you know, you're not going to see those results that fast, that If you've had depression for 10 years, you're not going to erase it in three weeks. It takes a lot longer, and it's a lot of hard work to get there. But um, 
part of our world today, our cultures, people don't want to hear that. We don't want to go through the long haul to get there. We want the overnight success. And occasionally you hear those stories of somebody who's an overnight success and we think, okay, these things could happen overnight. But really the rest of the story is it took these people a long time to get where they were. And maybe they had one big lucky break, but that probably wasn't the beginning of their journey. Okay. All right. So what do you advise people to do um, to stay with the journey for the long haul? I think often writing it down, taking a look at what are the small steps, how am I going to know when I'm making progress, because too often people think if I'm not making enough progress, I'm not making any at all, so to set smaller milestones for yourself, and again, to focus on what it is that you can control, so rather than saying, I want to be the CEO of the company, just to set a goal for yourself about what you can control. You can't control if you're going to get promoted, you can only be control whether how much effort and energy you're going to put into being the best employee that you can. So to really set goals of stuff that you can control and then to plan ahead. What am I going to do when this gets tough? When we set any new goal for ourselves, it's usually we're motivated in the beginning, but by week two, week three, we start to lose that motivation. So then to be able to say, how am I going to overcome those hurdles? How am I going to keep going when this gets tough? And just planning ahead can really help you to stay on track and to know how am I going to know when I'm on track, but also what are the warning signs that I'm starting to get off course and to spend a few minutes every day reflecting on your goals and how you're doing so that you can stay motivated to keep going. Okay. Now, presumably when people are on this journey of becoming mentally strong, there are setbacks. You know, you have a week where you slide absolutely backwards. How do you encourage people to keep going under those circumstances? Yeah, you're absolutely right that that it is sometimes two steps forward and one step back. And it's important to just recognize that one step back doesn't mean you're all the way back at the beginning. Sometimes people will just give up because they'll say this is pointless. But to remember that just because you made a mistake or because you got off track, that doesn't mean that you're a hopeless case. In fact, getting off track is often part of the process. And what's more important is how you get back on track. How do you deal with those setbacks? And each time that you do that is an opportunity to become even better so that next time you can work even harder and stay on course longer um, as you reach your goal. And presumably there are lessons to be learned in the what took you off track so that you avoid those same things taking you off track again. Yeah, absolutely. If we took a a really easy example, somebody who says, okay, I'm going to I'm going to lose weight, so I'm going to eat healthier. But then you get into the holidays, and they never planned ahead for how they were going to deal with holiday parties or family gatherings. And then they just want to throw in the towel because they say, well, I overate today, so there's no point in going. But to know that there are some predictable obstacles that you can plan ahead for, but also then to say, okay, even if I'm not able to predict that some sort of spontaneous thing comes up, you get invited out to dinner when you weren't planning on it, do you go or do you not? But to know, okay, these are the types of things I should be prepared for, for when they come up, and this is how I can deal with them. And just having those sorts of conversations with yourself can help you to um, figure out how to stay on course and how to get back on track better when you do um, sort of lose your way. And then back to what we were talking about last time in terms of dealing with failures or uh, shame, for that matter, or limiting beliefs, it's the notion of thinking, what is this belief doing for me? Because presumably that also plays in here about expecting immediate results. Yes, that's it exactly, to figure out what do I gain by expecting this and what do I, what do I have to lose by it? How could that sabotage my best efforts if I think I'm going to rise to the top in two weeks or I'm going to lose 100 pounds in one month? It just isn't realistic and it sets you up for failure before you even start. Okay. All right, so we spent a lot of time talking about failures, a good bit of time talking about resentment. Let's focus on the notion of calculated risks. You say that mentally tough, strong people take calculated risks. Explain what that's about and how they do it. Well, you know, sometimes our we don't just don't know how to calculate risk and we let our emotions play too big of a role. We think, well, if something feels scary, it must be scary, so I'm not going to do it. And if you took public speaking, for example, sometimes people think, oh, I can't get up in front of a crowd and talk to anybody. It's too scary, so they don't do it. But in reality, there's not much risk involved in public speaking. You're taking a bigger risk every day when you get in your car and drive to work. And so just sometimes just be a little more rational, be logical, be willing to look at the pros and the cons of of what you're doing and to acknowledge your emotions. I think 
sometimes, even as adults, we're bad at labeling our emotion. We just want to say, rather than saying I was sad, we say things like I had a lump in my throat or butterflies in my stomach. Just labeling the emotion and acknowledging how it plays into your choices can be really big in figuring out how do I... How do we figure out what risks to take? And we know that our personal lives really affects our, our work life. If you're anxious about something in your personal life, it can affect the choices you make at the office. And just acknowledging how all of those things play into the choices that you make can be really instrumental in helping you make the best decisions for yourself. All right. So... Th- so here, I like this example that, you know, we're going to, uh, there's this job, for example, I want to take. Uh, and it looks like a good opportunity, but I'm scared. I'm scared that I won't be good enough. I'm scared that I won't know how to do it. I'm scared that I'm fail. I'm scared of half the things that we've talked about already. And I've got all that emotion rolling in my body. So your notion is to acknowledge the emotions, to label it, and then try to be more rational. How can I be more rational when I'm so emotional? One good way is to, again, go back to just writing it down. What's the, what are the logical reasons I should take this job? And then on the other side, what are the logical reasons I shouldn't take this job? And then to go back to asking yourself, what advice would I give my friend? Because that helps take the emotion out of it, too. And then to sometimes ask yourself, well, if I did take this job and it was really scary, would it be that bad? It's our doubt and our ability to handle discomfort that sometimes keeps us stuck, but to know that we can usually handle more than we think. And sometimes dreading something and worrying about it is way worse than the actual thing would be. So you could waste months of your life worrying that it's going to be too hard, but then when you actually get there, it might not be nearly as bad as you expect it. And just figuring out how do I put my energy and my effort into something that's worthwhile, because I think so often we waste so much of our mental energy, and it just drains us of our mental strength. So to figure out how do I use my resources most wisely, our time and our energy, you only have so much of, and you want to put it to to use the best that you can. And in those cases where you're really anxious about something, you can take time to calm your body, figure out whether it's meditation or yoga or a few deep breaths, and then how do I think logically about this too, and then when can I just move forward anyway and know this is scary, but I can do it. Okay. You said the um, the energy, making sure we put our energy where it's worthwhile, because otherwise it just drains us. I think if we sum up everything that you've talked about today from mental toughness, that is the fundamental block, that I put energy around the things I can control, I put the energy around the emotions I want to feel, and I put the energy around the behaviors that are worth it in my life. So, Amy, thanks for joining us. Fabulous show today. Amy Morin, licensed clinical worker. The book is The 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. And join us next week. We're going to be talking with Jen Arnold about stress and resilience. So you want more actions on how do I become more resilient? Join us then. Thank you again for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Take charge this week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.